Welcome back, everyone, to the Cross to Crown podcast. Another exciting week. This week, we will go through a 22-week study in Revelation. (laughs) Kidding, kidding. We may do that one day. You never know. You never know. Uh, Hey, if you're out there in the world of, uh, we know uh, in regular podcast land, we'd like you to subscribe, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, et cetera, et cetera. But on the YouTube, please subscribe if you watch this. it's just uh, helps us get uh, what we're trying to say out there and we care about the truth and then also turn notifications on because YouTube doesn't let anything pop up these days. And so hit that bell thing and also just occasionally Google it in the search because sometimes that doesn't even work, but please subscribe to YouTube and comment. And if your comment is something we deem smart enough, we will reply or dumb enough because you know, no, I'm kidding. We appreciate all comments and, uh, we appreciate those who comment with Bible verses to back up their point. Even if we may disagree, we will address that. And so we appreciate that. And speaking of uh, subscribing to things like that, we do want to hit up just our little commercial inventory here. The New Covenant School of Theology. You can take online classes. You can work towards just auditing and learning. Zero wrong with that. We encourage everyone to do that uh, for 50 bucks or for 250 bucks, you can you know, you can get an MDiv, Doug. It's great. You can. Just a last class, night, by we, the way, not $250 for the whole thing. I want to clarify. What, right, per course. Mm-hmm. Yes, we just finished up uh, a course last night, and the next one starts uh, not this coming Monday, but the following Monday, which I believe is the 18th, whatever that mm-hmm. Monday is, October 18th, I think. Uh, and it'll be on the Synoptic Gospels, and it's going to be good. We've got a new professor, Dr. Bob Bryant, who's going to be teaching that one. And I've gotten to know Bob pretty well over the last couple of years. He brings a lot of uh, academic uh, power. Uh, you might be too young to know who Walter Martin was. Do you know Walter mm. Martin? Do no. not. No. John no, Walter Matthau. <laughs> he's, he's way older. Okay. Um, John Warwick Montgomery. Does that mean name anything to yes, you? Yes, that name sounds familiar. So uh, Dr. Bryant studied under both of those men, okay. and he comes with a, uh, a great apologetics emphasis. He's also been, he was a pastor for, I forget, 10 years or so, mm-hmm. and uh, taught at a Bible school. And um, he's now the head of the online education program at the Air Force Academy here in the Springs. Anyway, great guy, and uh, it's going to be a good one. So if anybody wants to jump in the MDiv program or the Certificate of Biblical Theology program, or like you said, just audit uh, we're starting up here in less than two weeks, and just go to newcovenantschooloftheology.org, hit app, uh, apply, and we'll get started. Great, and we look forward to uh, people uh, doing that, and hopefully we'll have some announcements in the future more about some more stuff with Cross the Crown, some more things beyond just the podcast that we can help um, grow people and uh, become Christ-obsessed in all things. Uh I did want to, uh, the, the uh, book you're doing on the Synoptic Gospels, a, a class I took at Southern was on that was taught by um, Brian uh, Vickers. And uh, Brian actually interned at the church I grew up in West Virginia. He's from West Virginia. He's a teacher uh, at Southern. But um, it was, I said, like, uh, it's either four Gospels or one Jesus or something like that. It was really good. It kind of broke down the historical context of what was going on and uh, of course saying four it was also dealing with john but it was just just really good and i the guy it's um the guy that uh is kind of famous at southern for uh his apologetics and church history uh but anyway it was really good metzger i think bruce metzger does that sound right yeah. was he at southern i don't know but he uh that was the book we used so oh yeah yeah, yeah of course yeah yeah, it's yeah. so yeah and it's kind of funny that he uh 
did someone like Bart Ehrman, who uh, is an apostate by all measure at this point, um, grows up and, and comes out and tries to say all these things that the Bible is or isn't or contradicts or whatever, when he would have been taught how easily it is to refute every one of those things. But there's money to be made in saying the same old arguments that the church has managed to refute for 2000 years. So, yeah. And Bob's going to get into some of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, most of our courses, biblical courses walk straight through the text, but this one's going to be a little bit more oriented toward how do we refute some of those errors? How do we defend, you know, comparing the genealogies, for instance, mm -hmm. and, and skeptics like to uh, bring that up and he's going to walk through some of our responses there. So yeah, it, uh, it's good to interact with those things. Good for sure. And you know, one of my favorite things is, uh, about those, um, the gospels accounts is I, I once heard someone say, it's actually not for gospel accounts. It's Matthew's account of our Lord's gospel. Like, you know, I know that's a, can be like a technical thing, but it's true. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that's cheesy. It's true. And sometimes I do this when someone goes, let's turn to Matthew's gospel. Well, it's not Matthew's gospel. Hmm. It's the Holy spirit's gospel. All right. And, um, you, you taught, you pastor, you do all those things. And I'm going to transition into our first topic now uh, for people who are looking at home for the time mark or whatever. But <laughs> to be an elder and to be a, uh, a pastor, if you will, um, to, to be overseen of the flock. Um, Timothy, first Timothy three is where a lot of people will go. Titus a little bit, but there's not as, not as much in that is um, I want to read this section here just so people know what we're talking about. First Timothy three. Starting verse one, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, I'm reading from the CSB. He desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And man, if you can handle more than one, whatever. <laughs> Self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not, and this is where we're going to focus today, but we wanted to get the context. He must not be a new convert, convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Uh, furthermore, he must have a good reputation, meaning, wow, that guy's a pastor? Like, that's kind of like, I can't believe it. Now, that can happen over time. Like, that guy I grew up with is now a pastor? Well, yeah, it's been 30 years. Things have changed. Um, so the part about can't be a new convert, this is written to vary by definition, the early church, right? I mean, this is Timothy, but this is Paul's instruction to him. Um, the early church was all new believers. How does that work? And then a subset of that is if you're going on a mission field, if you're going to Egypt, if you're going to Africa, well, Egypt's in Africa, you know what I mean? If you're going to Asia, wherever, um, and trying to plan a church, Everyone's a new believer. How does that work? How does that caveat of this section I just read work? Yeah, very practical question, because uh, even the context you just mentioned, they have to deal with that all the time. So even if we give the latest dating of, uh, of First Timothy, you know, in the early 60s or so, mm -hmm. uh, the oldest believers were only in the faith 30 years, uh, and that is from the, the disciples, right? That's that's the, the very first group who heard. So as Paul finally was converted and he went out preaching, uh, it took time. And so you're going to have, it's this. let me start with the answer. The answer is this has to be relative. The, the new believer qualification has to be relative 
to the other believers and to the circumstances. So Paul goes out to all these cities, his first missionary journey, second missionary journey, and then he comes back and visits those churches, and he tells Timothy later, hey, appoint elders everywhere. Titus, appoint elders in all these churches. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, there are groups. There are enough of them now. You need to find these, these older men who are uh, wise and, uh, and leader quality, those qualifications, and put them as elders. Clearly, some of them can only have been believers for a few years. Timothy himself, uh, right. when Paul first grabs him, could have only been a believer for a few years. So I think in that context, you take the those who are in the faith the longest and start evaluating from them, do they meet the other qualifications? Uh, in, in, a, in most American cities, for instance, uh, in most churches, you're going to have men who have been believers for decades, probably. Mm-hmm. You would be foolish to overlook those guys and grab a guy who's been a and a Christian for three or four years. That, they're right. just unwise, right? So it's got, there's got to be some relativity there. On the mission field, same thing. I would say you go and you, you preach the gospel, you have people come to Christ, and, and the missionary there, he also now becomes the discipler, and he's teaching the word of God, and he's growing them, but that's not his calling. Uh, he's, not, he's, not, he's a missionary. He's not there to be the leader of that church long-term, so eventually he needs to hand that off to the oldest in the faith, the most qualified men in the church. And that might be they're only in the faith a few years kind of thing. But I don't think you can go any other way with that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't know why, but the topic of house churches just came up uh, in my mind thinking about this. It's becoming a more common thing again. We can get into whether or not people should model the church after Acts or if Acts is transitional uh, some other time. But you know, if you're someone's like, we're breaking away from a church, we know there's something not right here. Um, this guy's, you know, got some truth to it. You know, I, I just, there's got to be, I think it's uh, Jeff Volker that says, we always need to ask in what sense, right? In what sense is this, is this going on here? And not everyone's able to get to a seminary. Not everyone's able to, like I said, if you're reading God's word and you're sitting in Let's say you're a Methodist and you're sitting there and all of a sudden they're, they're preaching through Romans 9, if they actually preached it. My dad went to a, a church that was preaching through Romans and skipped Romans 8 and 9. And um, you're, it's a true story growing up. He's like, wait a minute, what happened? Uh, and all of a sudden you're going, this isn't right. This isn't. And you start talking to other people like, yeah, you're right. Well, what do we do? Do we follow him? He clearly saw it. And so, yeah, what do you do with these house churches that are popping up too? Well, I wouldn't call them churches, first mm-hmm. place. Um, okay. I believe in the New Testament, the local church is largely defined by eldership. And just because you're a father does not qualify you to be an elder. Uh, so I'm not the elder of my family church. And if two or three families decide to get together, I'm not automatically an elder of the church simply because I'm the dad of one of those mm-hmm. families. That's why he lists those, lists those qualifications. And the church is organized when, when uh, around eldership, when Paul calls together the leaders of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, he says, you know, he brought together the elders of the, the whole city of the church. So I don't think a house gathering, a home gathering, a family gathering is a church. So I don't like that term because I don't think it fits the biblical uh, model. But you've got a, a few families get together for what Bible study and fellowship. Great. They, they should do that. But they need to be working toward being part of a local church where there's elder oversight. Do you think, and I think this is part of this topic, um, 
because one of the things you've done at the NCST school is hammer in, in a good way, uh, the local body, the local congregation, get plugged in, um, get training under your local pastors. And that's what you're making sure people are doing. If they're doing it through online that, Hey, these are some of the things we require. We need to work with your pastor, et cetera, is what do we do with, um, someone who seminary isn't an option, but you can, I don't know, let's just say you can tell this person clearly has the qualifications to be an elder. They want to preach. They want to teach. Um, H.P. Charles comes as an example. I'm, I haven't heard his whole story, but I'm sure he would say probably not the best way to do it. His dad died, and then he took over the pastoral duties at 16, right? It's like probably not something you recommend, mm. but it just happened, right? The, and so what do we do for people? Is seminary a requirement is basically the longest way I could have possibly asked that question. Not a requirement. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, the scripture doesn't know anything about seminaries. It's not, it's not there. Uh, and in the, the example you gave of H.P. Uh, Charles, uh, you know, exceptions should not become the rule. Right. Uh, Spurgeon, you know, his, uh, his rise to mm -hmm. his leadership position may be not be ideal either. And yet he was a great preacher of the word. So there are exceptions and God can use anybody in any way he wants to. But wisdom would say men need to be trained. And in, in our day, there is plenty of training available, uh, whether you go to seminary or come to some, some place like our school online, which is much cheaper than any yes. other route and it is available to everybody in the world. Still find good, godly men, leaders, elders, and sit under their teaching. And there's just a host of, uh, you know, the theology they can get online, the mentoring, the training, uh, practical training they need to get from somebody who's done it. Um, and no, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have been to seminary to be a faithful um, effective pastor elder these days. But on the other hand, there's so many inexpensive resources to take advantage of. It's a good idea to do it, I think. Yeah. And um, certainly it's easier now more than ever, even from uh, a biblical Hebrew, a Koine Greek standpoint, to learn those things. Um, people have uh, the way you guys do it. And um, there's just options for, for people to, to learn. And, but uh, you know, the qualifications in there, uh, of course, it was understood that, the, again, there, I've always found this fascinating, but it's true. There are things the Holy Spirit assumes we understand when we come to a text, right? There are things the Holy Spirit assumes when the, the context of these readers, they would have understood what was being said. And so not everything is said. Well, you can say it doesn't say you have to know Greek. Well, that's all anyone here would have known at the time, <laughs> right? Like, there's got to be some understanding uh, and things like that. Yeah. And, and you can be, you can be an effective pastor and be very faithful in your preaching, only knowing your native language, only knowing mm -hmm. English. But uh, as you've learned already in Greek one, there are some nuances and some things that begin to really help shape mm -hmm. the, a better understanding of some things. If you know the original languages. And again, there's so many resources available these days that uh, if anybody wants to put in the work, they can learn new Testament Greek and it'll help them. Right. And I think about the the ref, the, uh, the refuting uh, one of the Muslim arguments about um, Thomas is uh, they like to say it's a, almost like a what do we call it? Just a little a phrase, a, a thing like we would say when he says, my Lord and my God, what they're trying to say is kind of how we would say something like, oh, my gosh, it's you. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But if you know the Greek, it's ownership. It's the Lord of me. The God of me is the literal translation. There's no way it could be seen as a, a flippant phrase other than he is recognizing this is his Lord and God. That and no Jew 
would ever casually refer to someone as God. So right. there's two big marks against that view. Yep. Okay. And um, so when you get into studying this stuff through the New Covenant School of Theology, when you sit down and discuss eldership, you go to that passage, I would imagine, First Timothy, you go to others. Um, this is a side question. Nowhere does it really say pastoring is a calling. Um, but we hear it all the time. I was called to ministry and we know what they mean. And there's, but I'm just saying, should we refer to it as a calling? Because there are people who faithfully lead their church grows. They're strong believers. They don't walk away from the faith, but after about 20 years, they're like, I, I can't do this anymore. Did the calling go away? So, uh, should we refer to it as a calling? That kind of comes from, uh, Luther and other reformers. They're, uh, their whole doctrine of vocation, Luther argued that every man is called to something. Mm -hmm. a, a cobbler, you know, someone who works on shoes is called to be the best cobbler he can be. Um, I don't know that I see that language in scripture. Uh, the closest thing to a pastoral calling is Paul saying you know, called an apostle, mm -hmm. but we do have a clear record in his mind. Um, my, my experience is I know I was running hard. I had a man, a good friend, mentor, pastor who kept pursuing me to become a pastor. And I kept telling him, no, I know for certain <laughs> the one thing God has not called me to do is to be a pastor. And then I was sitting in a church service and it was missions conference. And the guy is up there saying, some of you are called to missions and you need to, to heed the call and, uh, and get after it. And my whole life flashed before my eyes. And I was convinced sitting there, I'm supposed to be a pastor. To me, that's that's just as clear as can be now is that forever and ever uh i don't think it has to be i don't i don't know so i i will say this in my own experience i believe the lord made it clear to me i want you pastoring if that's a call in the same way that paul received a call to apostleship no not as not as directly but as you started this with the first timothy three there he says if anyone aspires to be an elder that's putting the onus on the man saying I think I want to be a shepherd of the sheep, not so much sitting around waiting for, uh, for God to call. Uh, so I, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you know, try, try not to base my theology and experience, but no, right. Right. And I think I would say this, I think it's natural for every man who becomes a believer to at some point wonder, is this something I should do? I think eventually it goes away, but I've noticed Every man who I've ever come said, yeah, I thought about it for a second. I thought about like just because it comes across. You're inspired. You're sitting there. Um, for me, one of the things that often comes up is I'm listening to a good sermon. But then I think of a point and I probably shouldn't do this, but I go look somewhere else in scripture while he's talking. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that'd be really good to talk on. And then I start mm. thinking about what I would say and how I would point. like Hebrews 13 has been on top of my mind. We'll talk about this some other time, but just. Oh man, like there's all these, and, and I would tell someone, don't be afraid of it. Go talk to people, talk to the elders. That's what they're for. And there's nothing wrong if they sit there after a while and go, yeah, it was probably just a, you were just excited about God's word that day. It's okay. Now we should caveat it. All people who are elders must have those qualifications that are in first Timothy, but not all people have those qualifications will be elders. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people you and I both know, like that guy could be an elder tomorrow. He just doesn't want to do it. And that's okay yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Peter talks about that. Don't do it under compulsion. Right. Uh, don't, don't do it because you think you should, or someone else tells you, you should do it because you really want to, you want to be an example. 
and you got to meet the qualifications and have the gifting. And the church needs good, mature men. We need teachers, uh, even those who don't take on the office of elder. Uh, the church needs strong men in all these areas. So absolutely, it's not about everyone getting in that office. That section of deacons is important, too. It's kind of the people who can help serve but don't mm -hmm. want to be elders. And uh, there's a lot of men in churches don't even realize they're deacons, and they probably are. And it'd be helpful if more churches actually, I think, actually had the title deacon given to people. Um, but if you're faithfully attending to church and going and involved and sharing one another's burdens, all those things, you know who to go to also. I think they're the people you know. Um, and the church isn't, well, that's not true. But generally speaking, the church isn't going to prop people up who shouldn't be there, generally speaking. Does it good happen? Good churches aren't. Yeah, good churches are Okay, so uh, we know about good church. We know about bad churches. We know about people who we think are good and then fall away. Everyone's talking about the Mars Hill podcast and all that these days. Uh, first couple episodes, okay, and then it steers away from the main point. It tries to get into political issues, if you will, and that's really frustrating because they could have helped people. Instead, they made it about men's and women's roles and things like that, really, which is frustrating. But when you see someone like a Mark Driscoll who, his methods aside, influences people. I have friends who were saved by him, and they were heartbroken over what happened, mm. like just crushed them. Um, it's Philippians 1 in a sense, right? They're probably preaching for false motive, but the gospel is still that powerful. We don't know what his true heart is. That's the, the new covenant difference between the old covenant, like you were part of the nation. You were God's people. I'm a Jew, right? Um, but in the new covenant, we just do not know who is and who isn't. But we do believe, and you and I have talked about, if someone has been saved, if, uh, you know, if God's spirit regenerates their heart, that is an everlasting covenant to that person from the Lord, if you will, right? Like we do not believe they will fall away, that they will last to the end. Psalm 51 is a tough passage for people because well, I've heard it said, no new covenant believer ever has to pray what David says in Psalm 51. This is David's prayer of restoration, right? He's murder, adultery, all those things. Um, and then in Psalm 51, he prays in verse 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And uh, we do know that uh, in the story, is it in Kings or Samuel, where um, God's spirit, if you will, leaves Saul. It is no longer on Saul. So there are two theories that I've heard on this. One is the Old Test the Holy Spirit worked differently in the Old Testament. And then the other is that's solely talking about being king and the anointing and God's favor as Saul as king was gone. And David did not want that and did not want that to happen and was fearful of that. What do you think? Uh, I think the latter is the truth. Okay. Uh, the latter view. Uh, I am one of those that uh, says that we should not pray Psalm 51 as listed. Uh, there's that old uh, praise chorus um how's it go uh the, has the line the repeated line take not thy spirit holy spirit from me uh, uh i don't so know i'm not that, that old I'll have to. <laughs> <laughs> so we get down here i'll think of it um uh it was pretty popular back in the 80s and 90s anyway um yeah so the holy spirit in the old testament time before christ uh he would come upon people for work for ministry for uh, leading uh, the nation, that kind of thing. He came upon kings and prophets and so on. 
but he didn't indwell them. Uh, the indwelling of the Spirit is one of the great promises of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, mm -hmm. God says, someday I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all people. That, you know, Joel 2 says that, and, and then Ezekiel grabs it and says, I'm gonna, God says, I'm going to take your old heart of stone, that hard heart that wants nothing to do with me, I'm going to change it to a heart of flesh so that it's soft and it's malleable, and you will want to do my bidding. And that's a promise of the new covenant. Uh, Jesus refers to this in that interaction with Nicodemus. Uh, he, when he says, you must be born again of the spirit and of water. Uh, that's not baptism, although baptism represents it. But he's alluding to Ezekiel 36 there. Because in that same passage, he said, I'll give you my spirit, a new spirit, and I will cleanse you. I will completely wash you. So when Jesus says, uh, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. He's saying you need to be, have the cleansing that I mm -hmm. will provide on the cross. You put your faith in my death and resurrection, you'll be cleansed. And the spirit will give you that new birth. And that spirit now is, is the one who keeps that new nature, that new heart there. Mm -hmm. And he, he can't leave. If he leaves, then we die. Just like our yeah. physical heart, uh, if it stops, we die. So absolutely, I think it is a new covenant promise. And all who are truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit will never lose the spirit as they did in the old covenant. And do you think too, um, is there anything related to, I don't some people say Shekinah, some people say Shekinah, the Shekinah glory coming and going, if you will, from uh, the nation of Israel as well. And then feeling that and knowing that, is there any kind of tie in here? Uh, I'm, I don't know that the scripture ever associates those two. There, there could be a, a you know, a typology there mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. But I don't know if the scripture ever, maybe the tongues of fire, is that what you're kind of getting at? The tongues of fire coming down? Yeah, well, maybe. Maybe, but like the idea of when God's presence was in the temple, um, there was a sense that the nation of Israel knew it and and knew, and, and I, I haven't read enough, like I've read through it, but I just would like to know the history. And this is where I think a class would be helpful for me is, did they feel more safe? Did they feel more secure? No, God's here. We know that, right? Like the 400 years of silence you get between the end of the Old Testament, and New Testament, the people knew that wasn't like they didn't know God wasn't speaking. So I'm just curious with that, like David's like, oh man, his protection's gone. His presence is gone. That kind of thing. Or is that completely different? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we could tie the Shekinah glory to mm -hmm. that, but what you're describing is definitely what he was describing in Psalm 51. He knows he watched as Saul went from the leader of Israel to a madman and he knows the spirit left him. And so now he's committed this great sin. Uh, and he's concerned God will do the same thing that that's what Saul did. He sins, he disobeys God. And God says, I'm done with you taking my spirit away. David now comes to his senses. I've committed adultery and murder oh no, please, Lord, don't do to me what you did to Saul. It was a very real possibility and real threat. It is, uh, it makes Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11 a little bit more difficult, I think, at times, because especially like Samson, you're like, good mm -hmm. grief. Is he, was he really living by faith? And like, yes, he was doing God's bidding and God's will and God raised him up, but Man, it singles is out, but if you read kind of like, especially his last few phrases in words, you're like, is this guy really a believer, a true convert, if you will? Like, what do we do with Hebrews 11, you know? If, if Hebrews 11 didn't include him, 
I don't think I could come to the conclusion that he was a genuine believer. Mm -hmm. His whole life was about Samson more so than God. But there does seem to be that repentance at the end when his eyes are plucked out. He was there in chain. One one last Mm -hmm. time, Lord, just one last time, give me the strength. And uh, that's what I have to believe is at that point, his heart truly was saying, I want to please the Lord and, and let me defeat your enemies one last time did it benefit him in a sense i mean it killed him obviously but it did it did vindicate him yes but i have to see it that way i've just been doing a deep dive into the ecclesiastes again and the same thing with solomon you know um first kings chapter 11 gives a i don't know 20 verse recap of his life Mm -hmm. and three times i believe it is it says he was so um so seduced by these women that he walked away from the things of God and mm. and brought the idols in. He built the high places to Asherah and Moloch and, and all that. And he led Israel into some of the worst sin yep. they ever committed. And you look at think, is there any chance this guy is in heaven? Well, in Second Samuel 7, when God makes his promise to David that his son will always be on the throne, he says, and when your son sins, I will forgive his sin and keep him from basically jumping off the cliff to, you know, sort of summarize the point. So uh, we have to go by the word of God and Solomon, we're going to see him in heaven someday, but man, he had many, many decades of his life that he was in apostasy. Yeah. And um, just let it take comfort that no one is outside of God's reach. You know, you think about the thief on the cross, you know, uh, it's the, the famous example that's been going around from Alistair Begg about like, did you know anything about justification by faith? And people are like, what's that? Anything about the Bible? What's that? Do you join a church? No, what's that? Well, why are you here? The man on the middle cross said I could come. And, hmm. you know, if it's the cross and, and so and trusting in God, like he something, obviously the spirit worked in him to go. This guy is who he said he is, you know, hmm. and um, yeah. And it, it's crazy, too, because the Lord blessed Solomon with all that wisdom. And that just goes to show, and we can have all the scripture knowledge in the world. We can have all the head knowledge in the world. We can be Stephen Hawking, whomever, Einstein, and it doesn't mean iota if we don't have a spiritual knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. Well, Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, says these spiritual things can only be discerned by the power of the spirit, the natural man cannot discern these things and so yeah as brilliant as a richard dawkins is uh he's incapable of understanding uh, god as uh as who the bible reveals him as unless the spirit does his work and uh, everything everything start to finish in the scripture we see the spirit is right there active he's the um, he's the active force. I don't like to call him force. He's a him. Mm-hmm. He's a he, right? He's the third right. person of the Trinity, but he is the active force behind everything that God does in the scripture. We are dependent on the spirit in the old covenant. He empowered for certain things. In the new covenant, he gives that new birth and uh, will seal us to the final day. Well, and so how do we pray then? This isn't, I think you and I are on slightly different places on the role of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant in terms of gifts and things. But you and I would both pray, Lord, make your presence known today. Let your presence work in us. Let your spirit. And then we're talking about the spirit. When we say, let your presence be known today. How do we pray about that in, in the new covenant? Cause the spirit's in us. We have that promise that he's with us. Ezekiel 36, um, Jesus, um, 
says that the helper's coming. So we know his spirit's coming. Um, so how do we pray then that the spirit works more? Cause it's not a feeling, but let's face it. Every Christian has times where they are just, it doesn't matter what would happen in their life. They feel bulletproof because they feel God's presence. And there's other times where it's Psalms, right? Like, Lord, you feel so far away. Like what's going on? So how do we pray that God's spirit work in us and in, in, in the new covenant, if you will? Certainly. And, and we might use different words to describe the same thing, but I think we mean the same thing. Uh, whether it's feeling he's close or far mm-hmm. away would be one person's description. Another would be, mm-hmm. you know, increase my faith today. Right. I'm really struggling to trust mm-hmm. you yesterday. Like you said, I could, uh, I could move mountains probably mm-hmm. with my faith. And today I'm just really struggling. Uh, I pray through the, the fruit of the spirit from Galatians five, you know, he, he's there, his, 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 product his fruit what he what he produces in us is love joy peace patience and so on well if we walked in those things 24 7 we'd be perfect people so certainly we should pray for those things so when this trial comes i need love Hmm. Uh, if it's a spirit that gives faith i need i need more faith today so we ask him give me the faith to to persevere to 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 believe the word of god to believe the things of christ that kind of thing Um, i think that's that's we must, we should ask the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you remember in, in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, at the end there, he, he talks about ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. And of course, the you know the one segment of uh, of quote unquote Christianity takes that and uh, ask for anything you want, and he's going to give it to you. Right. He doesn't promise that. He does promise not to give you anything that will hurt you. If you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a snake or a scorpion. But then in Luke's version, he says. He delights to give us good gifts, and he labels the good gift the Holy Spirit. So the Father wants to bless us. He wants to bless us with good gifts, and the greatest gift he can give us as believers, since we already have salvation, we have justification, the greatest gift is more Mm -hmm. of his Spirit or more of the power of his Spirit. So I think we should ask the Spirit for that on a regular basis, and and he'll answer. Well, and I think uh, Romans 8 comes to mind, too, about sometimes we're just we know we need to pray, but we're not real sure mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit will work in us to pray. And sometimes we don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's true. Like the, the, the Lord knows what the concern is. We're not sure the words. We just say, Lord, these issues, these concerns, I'm laying at your feet. That's a good enough prayer. You know, there, there are times when you're in a men's group or a Bible study and people are like kind of praying what they know. And you're like, <laughs> the Lord's prayer is like 15 seconds. You know, the Ten Commandments are ten words. Come on, let's go. Anyway, uh, but there is a difference between someone who is is genuinely struggling to pray, but they're praying, right? Versus like sometimes we do try and show off what we know. I think to others, and we need to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, we ask the Spirit for help, and then we keep talking. Sometimes it's good to just shut our mouths and listen as He brings the Word of God to our mind, as He encourages our hearts and. And sometimes give us, gives us the direction we need because that's what he does. He wants to help us please Christ. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons it's important to keep, keep studying the word of God because we're giving him more words to use to bring to our mind to help these things. So sometimes best prayers are, help me, Lord, and then listen. There is the, uh, speaking of Psalms, we mentioned Psalm, uh, was it 5111, but David has the the famous saying a lot of people have, and some people have it up in posters, but I think we should remember it, and that is be still. Sometimes it's just good to be still and know God is God. 
And I think we, we should do that. All right. So we want to remind people if they are watching on YouTube and not subscribing, please subscribe. Why? Because it shows up in your feed more. And then other people might see it. Oh, what are they talking about? That's good stuff. We appreciate the feedback on the 8070 series. And if you have any questions, we will answer them. We always do. You can post them in the YouTube chat or tweet Doug at Doug Gooden or me at Josh Copen. We've gotten emails. We appreciate that from people as far away as like New Zealand and Australia asking questions. And we appreciate that. Our prayers for those people there as well who are uh, locked down all the time. We pray mm -hmm. you would get to meet with your church. We know Canada, things are getting a little crazy again. So please, um, while you can, meet um, and gather around the church, right, Doug? It's just, it's just so important. to. We aren't, we aren't, I think, the uh, Ligonier Conference last week, Steve Lawson was asked, what's the biggest crisis facing the young and up-and-coming church? And he said individualism. And I think that's mm -hmm. true. And I think... Uh, COVID and the pandemic has brought that out even more. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And Doug, what do we want everyone to do? Uh, NCST.NewCovenantSchoolTheology.org, CrossTheCrown.org. And at that, they will find everything they need, past podcasts, past teachings, classes, how to sign up, all that. And it is all, seriously, it's, it's for one person. It's not so Doug makes money or we get famous, we become social media influencers and we cry because Facebook and Instagram are down. It is all... <laughs> one purpose and that is what that we would all become intentionally christ obsessed in all things <laughs>